for the longest time, um, one of my favorite things as a Christian is to try to discuss with non-believers, just try to rationalize and argue why Christianity is true. That's called apologetics. And for the longest time, one of the hardest questions for me to really come up with an answer, probably for about 10 years, I was trying to find, how do I answer this question? This is a tough one for me. It asks this, how can an eternity of wrath be considered just punishment for a moment of sin? I've had that asked a number of times. Because I'll tell you, forever is a long time. A really, really, really long time. I was thinking about this question strangely this summer. I was driving home. We were on vacation. I was coming home from vacation. I, ha I was driving in the front seat. My wife is in the passenger seat. My three kids were sleeping in the back seat. It was 2 in the morning, and I'm driving on Highway 94 out of Chicago, and it was terrible construction, still is. And trucks fly down there, and the lanes feel like you're driving through these tiny lanes, almost scraping both sides of your car. And I can remember thinking, while everybody's sleeping, two in the morning, what if I just took my hands off the wheel for four seconds? Just try it. Going 70 miles an hour, just take my hands off the wheel for four seconds. It's a six-hour trip. Why can't I just let go for four seconds? If I took my hand off the wheel for four seconds, they would drastically change my future and my kids' future for the rest of their life. All because... I chose not to be responsible for a few seconds. In other words, the answer to this question, it's in the fabric of reality. Destruction is a natural consequence of carelessness. Or if you're purposely negligent in life, it just is the way it is. It's how it is. Because, truthfully, we've been created for perfection. We have been designed to live forever and to live perfectly forever. And deep down inside, we know it. That's why criticism hits... A, you, could get, you could get tons of encouragement, but one ounce of criticism will stay in your craw forever because we've been designed for perfection. It's who we're supposed to be. Sin has destroyed and continues to destroy that perfection that we're meant to be. It's destroying us. It's interesting doing some reading on this question. I came up with really two arguments why it's so bad, or some of the writers or theologians give two arguments why this is so bad. First one's called relational unfaithfulness destroys. What does that mean? Imagine your best friend that you grew up with for 30 years that you went to school with, played sports with, lived next door with. Imagine you came home and you caught your best friend with your wife in bed. Would that hurt your relationship? But you were friends for 30 years. It's just one night. You know something major has been breached. God is holy. Our relationship with him is infinitely more important than a human relationship. And sin is considered moral unfaithfulness. That's the first argument. Second argument is the moral rottenness doesn't just stay there. It affects everything else. And a perfect example for this is the Titanic. The indestructible ship is what they said when they first made it. 
cruising in the North Atlantic, and after four days, is already four days in the water, the crew spotted through some murky, foggy skies, dark at night, an iceberg. They're going so fast, they didn't have enough time to really turn quick enough. And so while most passengers were asleep, the starboard side of the boat took a glancing blow, and it only lasted seven seconds. But they were, seven seconds out of a four-day trip is going to ruin a boat? Yeah, 1,500 people died. You could say that's unfair. No. Icebergs sink ships. That's how it is. Sin sinks souls. That's how it is. There's no argument. It's just truth. And today we're going to see how true this is when a moment of weakness enters our life and allows sin in. It destroys. We're going to see that happening in David's life. And so the first thing we're going to do is read two stories, but we're going to start with chapter 11. I'm sure you know the story if you've ever read the Bible, but you really need to act like you've never read it before because it's terrible. Starting in verse 1. Starting in verse 1. The topic is sin sinks souls. Verse 1, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman and once said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. It's a pretty familiar story with a lot of news, a lot of communities. Before we go into this, it says in verse 1, David remained at Jerusalem and since Israel's at peace. And it's funny, when you're at peace, when all seems well, that is the moment when sin creeps in, when it strikes. What is what does it really mean? My question is, what does it really mean to be at peace in your life? What does it mean to say, I'm at peace? I'm not sure, actually. Jesus said, in this world, we will have trouble. I think life is every day is full of trouble. But what does it mean to be at peace? And when you've arrived there, it usually is the time when sin comes knocking. In verse 1, it says, David normally went to war and he decided not to. But as you read that, it's funny, scholars will say that's his sin. I don't, why, would, why would it be sin for the king, after 20 years of fighting, to just take off time? I mean, do you want Donald Trump to go to the front line? I better not ask that, actually. That's a bad thing to ask. But it's, it's not sinful always to have the general 
stay back while he has his captains fight for him. I don't blame David. He had 20 years prior to this of unrest, hiding in the desert. He's the king. Let other people do his work. However, when he was at peace, he was not expecting sin to pounce. That's why at verse 2 it begins just saying, it happened. It. Well, it is the sexual adultery he commits. I'm not going to call it a fair because we like to tone things down by words. It's not an affair. It's not a tryst. It's not a mistake. It's not, oops, it's adultery, fornication. It happened. But David wasn't expecting it. As it says in Genesis, right before Cain killed his brother Abel, God said, "Ah, be careful. Sin is always crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary. Meaning it wants what you is bad for you. It's contrary. It wants to take over. And then God says, but you must rule it. I call this moment, this it, the five seconds to death. It's about five seconds for when it comes. I like to relate it to, have you ever been sleeping in bed? You've had a tough night the night before, so in the morning you're tired and the snooze button goes on. You have five seconds to get out of bed or five seconds to hit that snooze button. If you give in to yourself and stay in bed and hit that snooze button, you'll be in another hour, half hour, or another 15 minutes till the next snooze button happens. But if you get out and force yourself up for five seconds and that five seconds feels like death, It feels terrible. You will win. But if you give in and hit that snooze button, you're done. That's what sin's like. You know it. When it approaches, when it comes to your heart, you know, no. And it's five seconds of death. Five seconds to run. Get out of there. If you linger, oh boy. It's bad. When sin came to David one late afternoon, he didn't run. He kept looking. He's vulnerable. Here's a question you have to ask yourself. When are you the most vulnerable? Are you prepared? Some of you, there's, there's, we have cycles in our life. There are cycles when we are the most vulnerable. For some people, it's when you're, it's late at night, everybody's asleep, and you have internet. Nobody knows what you watch. For some people, it's, um, it's on the road for a business call. You go to a conference or a convention, and you have a hotel in a big city. Ooh, that's compelling. I'll tell you what. When my dad died, my dad was a traveling salesman. One of the greatest things I can say about my dad is my dad would go to these conventions, and my dad called my mom every night. And when my dad died... There was no there was, there was no scandal. For some ladies, it's two o'clock in the afternoon browsing through Facebook. It's funny, I once heard that men are tempted by sight, women are tempted by relationships, emotions. And what I'd say is you need to know when you're the most vulnerable because that's when your flesh is ready to be tempted. And when it is, you need to run from the sin of lust. That's what David was dealing with here, is the sin of lust. 
That was the first iceberg that really started causing water to pour into his ship, sinking him. It's called flesh. And flesh causes you to want things you see. Your senses. You could list some, but sex is the most prominent. People are like, why do pastors always talk about sex? Because we're saturated in it. And it's tempting. Other ones could be greed, gluttony. We don't talk about that one too much. Covetousness. Covetousness just means I buy and I buy and I buy it and I buy it because other people have it, so I need to get it. So I got to have it. It begins as it did for David in verse 2 when he saw. It said it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. He saw from the roof a woman. He saw. It's, you know what's really funny is this is actually iced tea, not scotch. Believe me, it's iced tea. But the church will say, you know what, we should get rid of alcohol because it's so tempting and so many people fall. So should we get rid of women? Just a question. Anyhow, let's keep going. I won't go any farther on that question. I'm sorry. You understand? That's like, don't hit, don't hit your husband. Anyhow, let's keep going, Chris. All right. So as it begins, David saw, and by the way, seeing isn't the sin. It's what you do with the seeing. Do you linger? Do you click for more? And when you do, that's kind of like the puncture in the side of your boat when sin seeps in. The crazy thing about the sin of lust, and this is what I've, I've I'm a, I have a firm conclusion about this. The crazy thing about the sin of lust, it's absolutely, 100%, illogical. It doesn't make any sense. It feeds off of feelings, desires, endorphins in your bodies, arouse, want, and I can't explain why, but it's true. And let me tell you, want is powerful precisely because it doesn't make any sense. The more you try to understand it, the more tempting it becomes. That's why I think like when we make arguments about teenage pregnancy or childbirth out of wedlock, we need more education. No, we need more track practice. Run. Run. James 1, 13 to 15 describes it like this. Listen to how James describes the moment sin enters. Each person's tempted when he's lured and enticed. That means he sees and he's enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. It's kind of like when a sperm cell impregnates an egg, gives birth, conceives. And sin, when it's fully grown, ooh, gives birth to death. It's those five seconds. Run. Run. But I want it. Run. Don't think. Don't argue. Don't rationalize. Run. The greatest Greek myth I can think of that concerns this is the sirens. Sirens, those beautiful ladies that would sing, and the sailors would sail their boat, and they'd see them, and they'd hear them, and they'd just get closer and closer, but the whole point was to smash against the cliffs and sink them. Close your eyes, shut your ears, and run. Here's why. Just three reasons we find from this story. When sin gets a hold of your heart, or when it, when it hits or strikes, you change. You, you physically, mentally 
emotionally change. You become different, strange. Well, like the Titanic analogy, you start sinking. And here's how you can tell if sin strikes. Number one, you want what is not yours. The Bible's commands are so clear, we have no excuse. Look in verse 3. David knew. This is crazy. David, verse 3, and David sent and inquired about the woman and said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So he knew she was married. And didn't it, doesn't it say in Exodus and Deuteronomy, aren't there two specific commandments that came off of Moses from Sinai that say, you shall not commit adultery and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Pretty clear. Crystal clear, but sin takes that crystal and smashes it to smithereens because it's illogical. It's powerful. Second thing is it starts to cause you to justify the wrong. And I'm going to use the word justify by making illogical arguments about your illogical choices. Justifying means it's a way you cover intellectually. It's a covering intellectually that causes you to hide conviction. In this story, watch what David does starting in verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. Joab sent Uriah. That's the husband of Bathsheba. Uriah came to him. David asked Joab how Joab was doing and how the people were doing. He's being really nice to Uriah. Then David said, Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, followed him, present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, did not go down. He wanted him to go home to his wife. Why? So he could hide the sin. So possibly Uriah could sleep with Bathsheba and blame the pregnancy on him. But this guy's a good guy. Verse 10, when they told David Uriah did not go down to the house, David said, Uriah, have, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said, the ark of Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. In other words, there's war going on. Joab's in tents, the ark's in a tent, and you want me to go home in a comfortable house while they are sacrificing? That, he's a good man. And you want me to go home and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today, also tomorrow I'll send you back. So David's trying to scheme some more. How do I, get, how do I cover? He wants to cover. Verse 13, David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. That's why I have scotch up here. I'm kidding, it's not scotch. Becky, it's not scotch. So that he made him drunk and in the evening he went out to lie in his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. David's mad. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab, sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. David wants to kill him now. <laughs> Look at what sin is doing. It's causing David to justify some of the worst things you could ever do. All to try to cover his sin. To me, verse 25 is the saddest. Uriah dies. In verse 24, Joab says, The archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite's dead. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Don't let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack and encourage him. What? David, you had a man killed, and you're like, it's, it's going to be okay. 
boy, when you get caught in sin and you start justifying, it's scary how deep we can go. Justification is when you try to be logical about what is illogical. Our society has mastered this. How can a fourth grade boy be a girl? Tell me, how is, how is homosexuality logical? I'm just asking about logical. Can they have a baby out of this relationship? It's my question. Why is that a wrong question? Because we're trying to bring logic to something that's illogical, and we buy it. Justificate. We can justify anything. How is drunkenness and intoxication logical? How is it logical to act foolish, put yourselves in harm's way, and then get behind a wheel when you can't tell the difference between red and green? I had a friend who would get drunk. And he'd get so drunk, he would fight three guys at a time. Next morning, he'd regale all his friends. Why is that cool? Why is that cool to fight three guys at a time? It's, we're weird. You, there's, we're illogical. Sin is illogical. How is eating that extra piece of chocolate cake logical? You know it will make you sick and your thighs balloon. Illogical logic argues like this, but it's fun. So it's fun. Since it's fun, I should, it makes it all right. No, well, it, it, I deserve it. Or I can handle it. I have to have it. Everyone's doing it. How are any of those arguments really logically compelling? And there is one of the strongest ones. I'm at peace about it. What does that mean? What does that mean? This leads to a third problem with sin, which actually destroys your soul. And here's, this is the tragedy. This is when you know sins really hurt you. You normalize what is scandalous, shameful, and wicked. You no longer cry. You no longer show shame. It reminds me of the story about when Nazis would bayonet babies and they'd laugh. There's something, it's warped. Look what happened to David in 26 and 27. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. That's right. But look at David. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife, bore him a son. But, you know, David's like, no big deal, but this displeased the Lord. Those kind of phrases in the Bible, those are bad phrases when it says God was not happy. Did you know this was not David's only sin? Go to 2 Samuel 24. There's one more sin. The first sin was the outward issue of lust. There's one more sin that we've got to be careful about. Chapter 24. And I'll read it in 1 through 10. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. This is 2 Samuel 24, 1, verse 2. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, 
while the eyes of my Lord, the King, still see it. But why does my Lord, the King, delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab, the commanders of the army. And Joab, the commanders, went out in presence of the king. He numbered the people. Verse 9, Joab gave the king the sum. That means he gave him the total of the numbers of the troops. In verse 10, but David's heart struck him after he'd numbered his people. And David said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly. How? This is... How could this be a bad sin? All he wanted to do is number his troops. In fact, earlier, God had him do that. But somehow, this is different. Even Joab knows it's wrong in verse 3. He says, why does my king delight in this thing? Delight in what? I think, from doing more study, this is the, an inward sin of the ego, of personal pride, of saying, look, how great I am. It's an inward sin. It's a hidden sin. But even David knew it was a sin in verse 10. But what is the big deal? I think the big deal is sort of illustrated by Psalm 20, verse 7. Look what it says. Go ahead and hit it, Jonathan. 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots. Some in horses, but we trust the name of the Lord our God. The key is on the word trust. That means dependent upon. Put our, put really everything, our stock in the Lord. Not in our chariots, not in our strength, not in what we can do. And what David was doing here at his old age and things are going great, he was putting stock in himself. Over time, he's losing trust in God and relying on himself to do the things that God did for him his whole life. Everything David had, everything, was done by God. He was a shepherd who became a king who killed Goliath who was given the whole country because God did it. God anointed him. And now David's taking credit. This is a bad sin. It doesn't sound like it because this is a sin we commend all the time. But watch how bad this sin is. This is overwhelming to me. Watch verse 12 through 17. Listen closely to it. So starting in verse 11. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet of Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. What's that mean? So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days of pestilence in the land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. So there's three options David has for his sin, the consequences. David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hands of men. So he's like, all right, I'm going to let God decide what he wants to do to me as a consequence. So we think God, you know, God will probably slap him on the wrist or say, David, just don't do it again, okay? Because that's sort of how we view it. Like we can look, stare right in the eclipse and no big deal. Watch what happens. And please, read this like you've never read this before. So, the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. 
So David, numbering his troops, caused 70,000 people to die. Pride is that sick to God. Boasting, lifting myself up, really makes God crazy. And really, the, who killed these 70,000 men was the angel of the Lord, stretched out his hand towards Jerusalem to destroy it, and the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working, it's enough, stay your hand. And ain't what, imagine how powerful angels are. can kill 70,000 people. 70,000 people. God is treating this sin worse than he's treating the sin of lust with Bathsheba. The question for us is, if this sin of ego is worse than the sin of lust, how do we watch out for it? I think instead of running from the sin, we are prone to run toward it. We commend people who boast, who say, look at me, look at what we've done. I, I uh, came across this J. Vernon McGee quote, which I think brings light a little of how this sin manifests itself even in our midst. How much is the, in the treasury, we ask? How many people did we have attend this Sunday? How many were baptized? And then there's always that fellow who is, gets more excited over financial victories than spiritual ones. As long as we have enough money in the bank, we're fine. That's scary. Because that's how we are. We look at other churches sometimes and say, man, we're so much bigger. Or boy, they're huge. They're doing something right. Why? Why do we commend ourselves when God, doesn't God do the work? It's his choice, right? When you're doing good at your job, who gave you the gifts to do that? The main problem with this sin is who's behind it. First Chronicles 21.1, which is the mirror passage, says, I'll read it for you. Second Chronicles 21.1, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. It's Satan's behind it. And it says Satan incited David. means he stirs up pride. Look at what you've done, David. You are such an amazing king. It's scary. In Daniel 4.30, King Nebuchadnezzar looked over his whole kingdom. And he said, is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And it says, while the king was saying this, and while the words were still in his mouth, he was driven from among men and made to eat grass like an ox. Meaning God can humiliate proud people. We have to kind of be careful even politically when we're like, we're the greatest country in the world. Whew. What can God do in a second? There's another guy, his name's Herod, and the story is Acts 12, 21 to 23 said he put on his royal robes. He took his seat, delivered an oration, and the people heard his voice, and they said, he has the voice of a god and not a man. Immediately, it says in Acts, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he didn't give God glory, and he was eaten by worms on the inside. Ugh. Yuck. The second thing first we could say about Satan, how he works... It's found in 1 Timothy 3.6. He's talking about, be very careful about putting people in leadership that are young. Why? Because Satan might puff them up with conceit. It's the same idea, puffed up. Conceit to me is like a spiritual boil. Did you ever have a boil that's full of pus and you pop it and you squeeze it? Ugh. 
sins like that. It's in your heart. Pride can just ruin you. Remember, people thought the Titanic was unsinkable. So, if we go back to 2 Samuel chapter 12, we notice one thing. It's very simple. God sees your sin. And God punishes sin. Those are just the two very clear principles we can get. He did in David's life, and we'll see more of how he does that throughout David's life. In 12, 1 through 10, he sends Nathan to David to tell him a story because David was blind. Remember, he, he was now treating sick things normal, so he's blind. He's no longer sensitive. So God sent him Nathan, who told him the story, starting in um, verse 1. Nathan's David's prophet. said, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich man, the other poor. Rich man had very many flocks and herds. The poor man had nothing but one little tiny ewe lamb he had bought. And he brought it up, grew up with him and his children. It used to eat his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, killed it, and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was kindled. As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold. So David hears a story with, with proper perspective about how this poor man's animal is dead. And it kindles David. So Nathan says in verse 7, David, you're the man. Meaning, you took Uriah's wife. You're the king. You took his wife and you killed him. In verse 9, why have you despised the word of the Lord? And in verse 10, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. Two things God sees and he punishes. He punishes the first way. This is the number one way he punishes. And this way we don't think of his punishment. He punishes by giving you what you want. It's kind of like your boat's heading into an iceberg and he just lets you go. You could be, some of you are sinning right now and you think you're getting away with it. That might be punishment, that you're getting away with it because it has results. And then as we saw, the second way God punishes is directly he killed 70,000 men. God will sometimes give you what you deserve. And that's a terrible thing. What do you deserve? Have you ever really asked that? I deserve a big house. Do you? We really don't deserve anything. There's only one hope, and it's found in Psalm 51. And Psalm 51 is, says, this was written by David after he had gone to Bathsheba. And I just want to read the first two verses. This is our only hope when we're caught in sin. Psalm 51.1 says, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Mercy is our only hope. Here's a question I've always wondered because you'll, you'll often hear this. People will say, you know what? A person has to get to rock bottom before they'll really get saved. My question is, is there really ever a rock bottom? No. 
Because the human heart is so dark, it never ends. It's a bottomless pit. The only way you stop dropping is mercy. Have you ever saw those pictures online where they show a meth, meth addict, methamphetamine, where they show him before and after? Where he's, you know, you'll see a person with a mugshot before and they look kind of normal, but then each time they get caught with meth, they'll have scabs on their faces, they'll have hair. Next picture will show tattoos on their faces, no teeth. Next picture will show they lost 30 pounds. There is no bottom. There is no rock bottom. If God's mercy doesn't intervene, people will keep doing things that will destroy them. That's why when, if today you hear His voice, harden not your heart. Because there's no rock bottom. There's just not. As we consider this, I invite Jared, come on up. And I just invite you to really meditate on these things and ask yourself, what are you doing? Is God, God sees it. And how is he going to punish? And if you want to escape, David says, have mercy on me. And then he asks, he says later in Psalm 51, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Restore your Holy Spirit to me. And David was forgiven. He was able to remain king instead of being stoned because of mercy.